mornings. I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today with children heading back to school this year, the focus is not only on how our kids are learning, but on what they are learning or not. An in-depth discussion on the shortcomings of the modern curriculum. Also this morning, even years after Findlay's historic flooding, many myths persist about flood insurance to protect your home and your belongings. We'll get a refresher straight from the source at FEMA. And born in Texas, raised in Ohio, and now taking on Nashville, we'll meet up-and-coming singer-songwriter Jess Kelly Adams, who will perform on the Saturday night stage at this year's Hancock County Fair. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. Today is National Black Cat Appreciation Day. Also National Thrift Shop Day, Baby Boomers Recognition Day. It is National Vanilla Custard Day. It is I Love My Feet Day today. <laughs> All kinds of reasons to celebrate. And it is National Number 2 Pencil Day today. Celebrating the ubiquitous Number two pencil. And have you ever wondered if there is a number one pencil? Of course there is. This is kind of interesting. I did not um, I did not realize all of this. I looked this up. It's on mentalfloss.com. Looked into the burning question of uh, the history of the number two pencil. And uh, pencil makers actually uh, do make all kinds of numbers. There's a number one pencil. There's a number two pencil a number three, a number four. There's even like a 2.5 <laughs> pencil, a two and a half pencil. It all has to do with the hardness of the graphite in the pencil. The harder the graphite, um, I know we call it pencil lead, but it's not lead. Uh, it's really graphite. The harder it is, the lighter the printing that it leaves off on the page. And... Uh, Number one pencils are harder. Uh, the higher the number, the softer the lead or the softer the graphite, the darker the mark. And the reason why the number two is kind of the uh, de facto standard these days has largely to do with technology. Uh, because in the early days of uh, computerized readers, of pencil markings, the number one pencils were too light to be properly read by the machines, and the darker pencils usually resulted in erroneous results, um, and uh, the, uh, no, I'm sorry, I guess it's the, the other way around, isn't it? The, the number four is the hardest, I get it all backwards. Number four is the hardest, and then they could get progressive lighter. So it's the the harder pencils uh, that can't be read by the computer readers or the older computer readers. Today, they're more sophisticated, but in the early days. And the really dark pencils uh, just look like smudges. And uh, also, the early machines used the electrical conductivity of the lead or the graphite to read the pencil marks. And... Uh, they were they looked like smudges, and so they produced unreliable results. So anyway, the uh, because of the technology, they settled on the number two, and that became the industry standard. So there you go. Anyway, just something kind of interesting about the ubiquitous number two pencil. Num National number two pencil day today. Anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. We keep hearing more and more about the Delta variant. The pandemic continues. And guess what? Another mask shortage, uh, shortage is looming as the Delta variant continues to surge. The CDC updated its mask guidance at the end of July, recommending that even people vaccinated uh, need to start wearing masks indoors again in areas with substantial or high transmission rates. And as of... This past Thursday, over 90% of counties in the U.S. were experiencing that high or substantial transmission rate. As a result, 
Uh, the week after the CDC updated their guidelines, mask sales increased for, uh, 24%. And uh, the week after that, online mask sales increased 51%. Uh, one analyst says, while well, the growth in the mask industry is not as high as it was last year, the double-digit growth in the last three weeks has been striking. And I noticed ahead of you know this latest surge they go into the stores and uh, it, where everybody was selling masks six eight ten months ago they had them discounted they were selling them for like six seven bucks a piece and they had them discounted to like four for a dollar or something <laughs> you're talking about tremendous markup in the in the mask business um but yeah, you could pick them up for next to nothing. Well, now they're uh, hot again. Uh, also driving the increase in mask sales, the CDC is calling for mask wearing in schools among students, staff, and teachers to protect children who are not yet eligible for the vaccines. Around here, it's it's optional, but I would imagine that there are some who are picking those up, and that's impacting sales as well. Kind of interesting. Are you going back to uh, wearing masks? Have you been buying masks again? I, if I'd have been smart, I would have stocked up when you could get them like four for a buck <laughs> and then resold them at a profit because apparently now you can turn a quick buck that way. But anyway, uh, let's see here. Some of the other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories uh, for this Tuesday morning. The Census Bureau has dropped a uh, another massive bunch of data, and it's always interesting around the time that the census, you know, every 10 years goes around and, you know, does their head count of everybody in the U.S. and then crunches all the numbers and puts out all of this data. It's always interesting to see. Uh, one takeaway from the new census data, we have a new top five list of the largest cities in America. Yes, uh, there is a change. The top five largest cities in America. The first four have not changed. New York is number one, followed by Los Angeles, Chicago, and then Houston is the number four largest city by population in the country. Can you guess what number five is? It was Philadelphia, but it is not anymore. The new number five city in the U.S., Phoenix, with a population of some 1.6 million people. The city's population grew 11% over the past decade from 1.445 million to 1.608 million. The Census Bureau also determined the median age in Phoenix to be about 34. So that bodes well for it staying uh, in the top five for quite some time to come. So interesting. So now Phoenix, uh, the fifth largest city in America. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, University of Iowa researchers put this data out the other day. 2,400 volunteers they uh, examined. They found that short men and obese women earned less at their jobs than their taller, thinner counterparts. Apparently, physical appearances affect more areas of life than they really should. These researchers found that men earning 70000 per year or more, a centimeter increase in height was worth $1,000 extra in income per year. For women in that same income bracket, every single point decrease in BMI was worth an extra $1,000 per year. The authors of the study says uh, the authors of the study say that this shows the importance in accurately measuring body shapes when it comes to creating public policies on mitigating discrimination and bias. In other words, that's just wrong. That's essentially what they're saying. That is that is uh, I, I I would imagine that 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 can't be deliberate, can it? I mean. Employers can't be deliberately saying, well, this person is shorter or taller or fatter or thinner. We're going to pay them differently based on that. 
it's got to be subconscious. Apparently, the, I mean, it's uh, it's too consistent across the board. And they looked at 2,400 people. It's too consistent across the board to be a coincidence. But I can't imagine that it is deliberate. Nonetheless, it's just wrong. And something to think about. If you are an employer, maybe think long and hard about what you are paying to whom in your company and why. So, based on that. Twitter has a new... Uh, Appearance. I don't know if you are on Twitter. I don't know if you logged onto the website uh, recently. They have a new font and new color patterns, and apparently it is causing issues for some users. The social media platform recently posted it was actively looking for a fix to the new font after many users, users complained that its higher visual contrast uh, was causing them pain. Uh, specifically when viewed via the Windows operating system. So I don't know if there's some confluence of factors between Twitter and Windows, but the design was updated last week with colors intended to be higher contrast to draw more attention to photos and videos, but some users reporting eye strain, headaches, even migraines as a result of the new font and color scheme. Twitter says they're working on it. No timeline for when they might come up uh, with a solution. And uh, one other note, a couple of other notes here, because we mentioned this yesterday, and this is the time of the year when everybody is uh, concerned about this. Uh, Keebler is once again releasing its pumpkin spice fudge cookies. This is the time of the year. Before too long, we'll be getting pumpkin spiced everything for fall. Pumpkin spice fudge cookies from Keebler First released back in 2015, but discontinued three years later. This year, it is back. The spiced cookies are drizzled with vanilla fudge in the iconic Keebler design, starting to roll out in grocery and retail stores now. And on a similar note, this isn't necessarily pumpkin spice uh, related, but it is uh, fall and Halloween right around the corner. A new limited edition Skittles being released for Halloween called Skittles Shriekers. It is a new pack of five flavors, Citrus Scream, Ghoulish Green Apple, Rattled Raspberry, Shocking Lime, and Spine Tingling Tangerine. And they all have a punch of sour flavor. Uh, you can find those on store shelves now. So you can try them out before Halloween. You've got plenty of time to... <laughs> try them out and see see what you think uh, before Halloween, which is good because I think we need to test these. I like my Skittles. There you go. Some of the most uh, interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Tuesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm John Marshall. The WTOL 11 first alert weather forecast, a chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day, a high of 82. Six months after the loss of a variety of equipment in a fire in their fire station, the Blanchard Township Fire Department in Benton Ridge now has some good news. According to Fire Chief Dave Lucas, We applied for uh, assistance to firefighter grant through FEMA, which is through the federal government. You get SCBA units, which are self-contained breathing apparatus units, fire hose and nozzles, get us up to NFPA standards for a fire service. One grant for more than $87,000 will help replace all of the department's SCBA, while a second grant of more than $45,000 will allow the department to replace its hoses and nozzles. And we also apply for one truck, replace two older units that we have. The decision on the truck grant is still pending. The Ohio Supreme Court is considering the case of a man who tried unsuccessfully to withdraw his guilty plea in a fatal shooting on the basis of new evidence he claimed exonerated him. More from ONN's Dave James. At issue is the killing of a woman four years ago during an argument at a gas station in Cleveland. Defendant Terry Barnes maintained he returned fire in self-defense but pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter because of a lack of evidence backing him up. A judge refused to let Barnes withdraw his plea a day before sentencing after Barnes learned of security footage audio that he said proved the woman's brother fired first. Dave James, I went in news. National health officials seem poised to recommend booster shots for the COVID-19 vaccine as Delta variant cases surge. More from ONN's Tracy Townsend. 
The National Institutes of Health could decide in the next couple of weeks whether to offer COVID-19 booster shots to all Americans. The rollout could be similar to the first vaccine distribution. Among the first to get the booster shot would be healthcare workers, nursing home residents, and older Americans. I'm Tracy Townsend. Several Cincinnati entertainment venues will require proof of COVID-19 vaccination or a negative COVID-19 test. The Taft Theater, Icon Music Theater, PNC Pavilion, and the Riverbend Music Center are all implementing the policy beginning October 4th. For WFIN News, I'm John Marshall. Well, you know, in the run-up to back to school this year, there has been much discussion not only about how our kids are learning in person versus online, but also about what they are learning. And I think you know what we're talking about here. There was an op-ed piece a couple of weekends ago in USA Today from the executive director of the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University takes a closer look at that question through recent published data on students' proficiency in American history and civics. And joining us is Ashbrook Center Senior Director Patrick Maloney. And Pat, in the, in the broadest sense, you're, you're, you're arguing here that this has been pushed, that uh, history and civics has been pushed to the back burner by a curriculum that places greater emphasis on other priorities. Is that pretty much it in a nutshell? Uh, it really has. Uh, uh, first, what it's, how it's been, uh, what it's being pushed back for, but also how it's being taught, I think, is, is important to consider here. Uh, you know, for years now, there has been this talk about STEM uh, education uh, and a lot of money put behind it. STEM education is science, technology, engineering, math, making sure that, that students and young people are proficient in those areas. But there are only so many hours in a day uh, for students to, to learn. And uh, yeah, that comes at the expense of other subjects. And the easiest subjects to go after are social studies and in, in English. And, and when you look at the test results uh, from this, uh, the national, uh, national assessment of educational progress, NAEP, scores that they do every four years. And they, they used to do them for high school students, but the scores were so abysmal, they stopped doing that and just do them for, for eighth graders now. Mm. But only a quarter of, of eighth graders in the country are uh, uh, above or proficient uh, at, at, at civics. And uh, 15%, uh, sadly, of, of that same cohort is proficient in American history. It's just, mm. it's just abysmal. Yeah, uh, and and that's not to say that the STEM subjects aren't important. I mean, we understand that. That's right. That's correct. But but again, you point to that data which shows the end result of these shifting priorities. That's right. That's right. And really, the way, uh, priorities are shifting, but also the way it's being taught. Um, you know, we have a, one of our senior fellows here uh, at the Ashbrook Center, a man named Gordon Lloyd. Um, he's probably the foremost living scholar on the on the Constitutional Convention. Um, you know, anyone who knew, uh, who knows more, or who knew more uh, than Gordon does about the uh, uh, the Constitutional Convention was there themselves. <laughs> and uh, Gordon has said, uh, Gordon has said over the years, you know, it's tough to love an ugly founding, and there has been a change in the way that American history and government is taught that that that. We're showing, you know, it's one thing to teach a warts and all picture, mm-hmm. but it's another to focus purely on the warts. And yeah. that's what a lot of, of, of students are getting right now. Yeah. And that's why I was going to mention, you talk about what it is that they are learning uh, in this uh, subject. When we wade into these waters, anyone in academia talking about the teaching of American history and civics, many people these days will hear the words, critical race theory. Is this uh, another way of advocating for or against that curriculum specifically with all its controversy? Well, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. What is and isn't critical race theory? Some well, that's part of the problem because law schools. Yeah, that's part of the problem because right. there's no real definition of what it is. And so it can really be whatever somebody wants it to be, either positively or negatively. That's right. That's right. Nashbrook's approach is, is that, look, you know, uh, the founders understood that uh, human beings aren't perfect. They weren't perfect themselves. Uh, James Madison writes in Federalist 51, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. These men weren't angels. Mm-hmm. They were human beings like the rest of us, and they had to struggle with uh, mightily 
with 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 uh, pressing issues uh, of their day, and we're looking back uh, with our present lens on their decisions and tisk tisk and judging them harshly. What would we do in that in that uh, in that position? How are we going to be judged in the future? I think uh, history requires uh, a degree of empathy and understanding that these aren't just marbled perfect figures uh, with with statues on the National Mall. They were real people trying to do what was best uh, for the country, for their families, for themselves. Um, and that and, while the country itself isn't perfect, its principles and its ideas are. Yeah. And, uh, the and founders understood that and, mm-hmm. and subsequent generations understood that too. That, yeah. That, this that is, it's, that's what we're striving toward. Yeah, th- this goes beyond just the founders. I mean, throughout history, you have uh, average human beings who are doing extraordinary things and sometimes falling short. And uh, we referenced the USA Today piece uh, a little bit earlier, and you uh, kind of touched on this. There's this one statement that really stood out to me, and I'm quoting here, we must not cover up or downplay the terrible ways in which America has failed to live up to its principles, but students also need to know that these principles, not our failure to live up to them are the essence of america so how do we walk that fine line because that's a fine line even for adults much less for children to uh separate those two celebrating our principles while recognizing our failings sure i I think the way to do that isn't what ashbrook's approach has been for uh, 30 over 30 years is to really go back and look at the primary documents, not just the founding documents, but the speeches and letters and um, uh, correspondence and debates between uh, the statesmen uh, in our history and, and understand what they were trying to do, understand the principles for which they were striving and fighting, but then also looking and seeing where they came up short. And it's a wonderful opportunity for students and teachers to have a conversation, not just among themselves, but really with these people, uh, these great men and women who lived and fought and died and uh, loved the country. Um, and, and, and look at their words and understand them in the context of what they were dealing with. That helps set the, uh, the context for the, the situation which they found themselves and why they were doing what they were doing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, however imperfectly, and striving toward that uh, and, that more perfect union, and also keeping everything within the context of the era in which we're talking about. Because I think a lot That's of what's right. kind of gotten us into trouble is trying to uh, to project modern sensibilities and modern right. morals on uh, historical figures when you know in a different era, different time. That's exactly right. Uh, this this notion of presentism that somehow we in the present know better. Uh, you know, we say yeah. hindsight is twenty twenty. Sure. Um, that we have this perfect vision uh, and and know what was going to happen, know what the consequences of the of uh, the decisions were back then uh, that they didn't. And they were laboring to to make the that's, uh, the best decisions possible. Yeah, that's not to say that we can't critically look at the outcomes sure. of of what they did. Because I mean, you acknowledge. I think right. we all need to acknowledge that America that the American history that we learned in school a generation or two, uh, or two ago was not the whole story. I mean, either deliberately or not, history right. w- was once sanitized. Right. That's right. That's right. It, it was. Um, whitewashed um, uh, certain um, people and groups uh, were were kept out of the narrative and Mm -hmm. they played a role and it's important that their role be uncovered uh, in in history and and understand the role that they played and how the decisions affected them but always keeping in mind though um, what those principles are and how those groups and how those people uh, strove toward that 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 perfect idea of, of uh, self-evident truths upon which the country is founded. Yeah. Ultimately to circle back to where we started though, the most important point is that while people are arguing over these finer points uh, and using these buzzwords like critical race theory and so on, kids aren't learning any of it because it has been so de-emphasized. I think de-emphasizing what they are learning 
um, the way they go about it, they're, they're, the textbooks um, are, are, are just atrocious. And let me, let me just uh, stop there. But I, I think that a lot of times teachers get a bad rap. Um, and look, you know, we, we have 30,000, over 30,000 teachers in our network uh, here at Ashbrook through our Teaching American History program in all 50 states. Um, there are wonderful te- teachers out there. They're doing everything they're asked. They have a very limited window of time, and they're given, frankly, crummy resources at times. These textbooks are biased. They're inaccurate. Um, and that is a problem, too. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're just providing – those textbooks are providing inaccurate information. And these teachers, um, when they go to teach, in many instances, what we discover is they want to go back and teach because they were inspired by a teacher they had in history right. or social studies. Yeah. Um, uh, growing up and they've gone off to college and they've gotten their education degrees. But the problem with these education degrees are, is that it's all pedagogy. It's how to teach. It's not what to teach. Yeah. Uh, in many instances, the last time that these teachers had, um, uh, had a social studies class, a history or government class, is when they themselves were high school teachers or high school students, I should say. So what we're trying to do is provide them that, that historical, context and documents and and professional development to give them that content knowledge that they can go and take back to the classroom and help to help their help them tell the wonderful and, and truly beautiful story of America despite its warts and all that um, uh, that they or maybe they because really of. can't get otherwise from a textbook yeah or, or maybe because of the the story is so beautiful frankly because of uh, the warts right. and all uh, as well so again that's right. a that's lot right. there a lot there for folks to think about not just about uh, how our kids are learning but what they are learning again uh, Ashbrook senior uh, Ashbrook Center senior director Patrick Maloney from Ashland uh, University uh, where do folks learn uh, more about uh, the work that you are doing there well, we have uh, programs for students, teachers, and citizens that we do through, uh, through the Ashbrook Center here, and they could learn more about the Ashbrook Center at ashbrook.org. But if there are any teachers out there, if you, or if your listeners know any teachers um, or even uh, students, I would encourage them to go to our, our website for teachers and, uh, and their students, teachingamericanhistory.org, T-A-H.org. Uh, it's the largest repository for, uh, for teachers in the country offering professional development opportunities. Uh, uh, across the country, but it's also uh, where we house our document library of, of uh, three or 4,000 documents, primary uh, documents that teachers can use in their classroom. They can create readers um, of these primary documents with focus questions for their students. They can also download uh, our, our core document uh, collections. Uh, we're doing 45 document volumes uh, covering the breadth and depth of American history uh, from the colonial period all the way through to, through the end of the Cold War. Um, and I would encourage any any teachers or students out there that are interested in, in that uh, to go to TAH.org uh, or Ashbrook.org. We will link up those resources on our webpage. Fascinating stuff. Patrick Maloney, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Chris, I appreciate it as well. Thanks so much. You know, anytime we get a couple weeks stretch with what seems like day after day after day of rain showers, people in this part of Ohio uh, start getting a little nervous, start thinking about the possibility of flooding. And on that note, even years after historic flooding wiped out so many homes and families' belongings, there are still some persistent myths about flood insurance. We were talking about this uh, on the news just yesterday, so we wanted to get uh, the straight scoop right from the source. James Sink is Regional Flood Insurance Liaison in the Mitigation Division of FEMA Region 5, which includes Ohio. And James, you know, first off, I, I continue to hear people say, uh, people come up and say, well, I can't get flood insurance because I'm too high risk. I live in, in a high, too high risk of an area. And then uh, I also hear people come up and say that they believe they can't get insurance because they don't live in a high risk area. And I'm thinking if those two things were both true, then the flood insurance program would be pretty easy to administer because no one would qualify. But that, but that is certainly not the case. The fact of the matter is that uh, everyone uh, really qualifies, right? 
Yeah, you're right. Um, that is uh, probably the number one myth is, is about who's eligible to purchase flood insurance. And, and like you said, it's, it's one or the other people here. Either they can't buy it because their risk is too high or they can't buy it because their risk is too low. In reality, anyone in a national flood insurance program participating community can purchase flood insurance. Um, so what do we mean by a participating community? Uh, the national flood insurance program is voluntary. So the uh, jurisdiction that has land use authority for like the building codes and stuff like that uh, has to agree to enforce certain minimum floodplain management standards. And in exchange for that, we make flood insurance available in that community regardless of risk. Uh, so in the city of Findlay, for example, flood insurance is absolutely available to anyone in the city, homeowner, renter, or business owner. Well, that's what I was going to say. Uh, that's part of the other uh, thing is that uh, I, I think some people believe that this only applies to homeowners, but as you alluded to, uh, renters uh, have the option to purchase flood insurance. Uh, the NFIP also protects businesses. Absolutely. So for homeowners, uh, we offer coverages up to $250,000 for the building and up to $100,000 for the contents. Renters can have contents only coverage because renters insurance does not cover flooding as a general rule of thumb. Uh, and then businesses can be covered for up to $500,000 for their building and up to $500,000 for their contents, including inventory. Now, as I understand it, the premiums for flood insurance, be they uh, homeowners, renters, businesses, the premiums are set by the National Flood Insurance Program, not by individual agents or insurance companies. Is, uh, is, is that right? That is correct. So to purchase flood insurance, you can go to your favorite local insurance agent, as long as they are a, a state-licensed uh, property and casualty agent who mm -hmm. has completed certain minimum training requirements, they can write a flood insurance policy through the NFIP. Um, the premiums, though, are based on your risk. Uh, so the higher your risk is, the higher your premium will be, and the lower your risk, the, the lower your premium will be. So, but the but the cost based on your risk should be the same regardless of where you get your homeowner's policy. Because, uh, you know, obviously people shop around wanting to get the best deal, and uh, while certain companies may offer the rest of your homeowner's policy uh, for less or more expensive depending on the company, the flood insurance should be pretty much the same uh, across the board, right? Yes. Thanks for letting me clarify that. Um, if you go to uh, insurance agent A and they give you a quote, insurance agent B should also give you the same quote. They're following the same underwriting rules. The coverages are the same. So um, there really is no shopping around. Your premium would be the same from agent to agent. So obviously, if you are shopping for a policy, at least that part should be pretty much set. Now, the one thing that we do know is uh, that, as you were saying, your your premiums for flood insurance are based on risk, which is largely based on the official maps of flood zone areas and so on. And I, as I'm sure you're aware, our area has been undergoing a series of flood mitigation projects to help lower that risk for residents and business owners alike. Some months ago, we reported that local officials are hoping to update that flood map moving forward. What is involved in that process and, and how long does that take? Um, so updating flood insurance rate maps can take uh, quite a bit of time. It, it does depend on exactly what is being done. Um, FEMA, uh, for example, uses a, 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 a triage system, a coordinated need, needs management database uh, to kind of go through and prioritize different areas for remapping uh, based on a variety of factors. Uh, the community, of course, can always um, instigate their own map change process through a letter of map uh, revision. Um, and in that case, the community would provide to FEMA the data that we need to update the flood insurance map. Mm. So uh, if they go through the, the FEMA triage system, we reevaluate every five years and then make decisions from there. Um, the community, of course, though, can inst instigate that at any time uh, through the letter of map revision process. So, and again, just to sort of circle back to where we started, uh, because just because uh, your flood risk may change, again, that does not uh, change whether or not you are eligible for coverage. It may, however, change your rates on down the line. So that's an interesting question. Uh, today, actually, is the first day that people can get flood insurance premiums quoted under our new rating methodology hmm. uh, called Risk Rating 2.0. Um, so today... 
uh, if you are a new customer to the National Flood Insurance Program, those flood insurance rate maps don't really drive your premium in the same way that they did in the past. We're looking at a, a much broader range uh, of flood frequencies and flood risks. Uh, so starting today, for insurance purposes, the flood insurance rate maps control less for the premium. However, those flood insurance rate maps still matter for uh, floodplain management, uh, local building code kind of things, and it also matters for uh, mandatory purchase requirements. If you're in a high-risk flood zone, as shown on those maps, your lender might require you to have flood insurance as a condition of a federally-backed mortgage. Yeah. However, starting today for new business, uh, those flood insurance maps do not control as much as they once did when it comes to setting those premiums. Uh, you make a good point that in many cases, lenders will require uh, certain homeowners, business owners, and so on to carry flood insurance uh, as a condition of the loan, given the uh, risk level. And that being said, also brings up a good point that uh, people shouldn't uh, have this false sense of security that if they are not in a high-risk area, that they uh, or don't have any uh, any risk at all and therefore don't need flood insurance. Absolutely. So in Hancock County, we have had over 2,000 flood insurance claims, and we've paid out over $38.5 million in flood insurance. Now, across the entire book of business, historically, we would say 20% of those flood insurance claims came from uh, areas that were, were low to moderate risk. These days, we see that number trending to over 40%. So we are seeing a change in where we see our flood claims come from and where we are seeing flood risk. It's important to know that those flood insurance rate maps only show a 1% annual chance flood event on the river. Um, it doesn't show things caused by like flash flooding for heavy rain and that right. kind of stuff. So even if you are uh, outside of a mapped high risk zone, you really should consider purchasing flood insurance. And like I said, these days, about 40% of our claims are coming from those supposedly comparatively low risk areas. And the good news, as we were mentioning earlier, that is if you are in one of those lower risk areas, it's probably going to cost you uh, a bit less less uh, to insure uh, against flooding than it would at a high-risk area. So if you don't think that you've, you've never had a flood uh, issue before and you don't think you need it, uh, better safe than sorry, and it may not cost you as much as uh, perhaps what you might think. Now, you have uh, a lot more information um, about flood insurance, uh, what goes into all of this, what's covered, and so on, uh, at your website, right? Yeah, so for more information on flood insurance, go ahead and uh, give your local insurance agent a call or visit floodsmart.gov, uh, and you'll see all kinds of information there about what's covered, how much it costs, and an agent locator tool in case you need help finding an insurance agent in your area. Again, James Sink is Regional Flood Insurance Liaison in the Mitigation Division of FEMA Region 5, which includes Ohio. And James, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update of the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Horses do not belong indoors. Police recently showed up at a home in Oconee, South Carolina, after being summoned by a woman who said she saw her nephew ride by her house on a horse. And he doesn't own a horse. <laughs> Naturally... She was suspicious, so she called police. Turn it in your own nephew. Um, police said they tried to talk to Gary Coble from outside the home, but they couldn't make out what he was saying. They then called uh, Gary's father, who owns the house that Gary was seen leading the horse into. <laughs> police eventually entered the home, got permission to enter the home, and saw um, horse droppings on the living room floor which was kind of a dead giveaway that there might have been an equine in the home. <laughs> the horse, named Jubilee, was found safe. Uh, Gary faces charges, including one for livestock theft. He is already wanted on other charges, including one for throwing a musical instrument into a pasture. <laughs> That's just... <laughs> That story is weird on so many levels. I, I don't know what really to make out uh, make of that. <clears throat> okay. Elsewhere in the broken news, this is like a scene out of Weekend at Bernie's. You remember the, the film Weekend at Bernie's? In Jamestown, New York, two women have been arrested after allegedly hiding their deceased roommate in her bedroom while they had a party in the house. <laughs> 
Police discovered the body of 62-year-old Patricia Barter after responding to a welfare check on the home. Uh, This is according to a local news report there in Jamestown, New York. Investigators uh, claim that the women moved Ms. Barter's body to the bedroom after she had died from a suspected overdose. Um, Police say the two stated that they did not call police because they were afraid officers would possibly uncover other illegal activity. (laughs) Well, we wouldn't want that. We can't report our friend dead. (laughs) They might find out that we've been doing things that we aren't supposed to do. Uh, Stephanie Hilburn was arrested by Montgomery County Sheriff's deputies on August 11th and is charged with concealment of a corpse. Her uh, roommate, Deborah Eglin, is currently in New York State Prison on other charges. Uh, she is also expected to be charged in this case. So, All kinds of weird. <clears throat> all kinds of weird in the broken news this morning. This uh, story from the Buckeye State. Sintas, uh, the business services company, they're based uh, here in Ohio, Sintas. And they are... Once again, asking the public, I think they've done this in the past, once again, asking the public to choose between 10 finalists for the title of America's Best Restroom. America's Best Restroom. The company says the 10 finalists were selected on criteria including hygiene and aesthetics. (laughs) This is the first thing I notice when I go into a public restroom. The company says the 10 finalists... Uh, are the Core 24 GVL Gym in Greenville, South Carolina, the Fancy Flush Portable Toilet in Santa Rosa, California, JFK JFK Airport's Terminal 4 in New York, Nantai Fine Dining in Atlanta, Georgia, the Planet World Museum in Washington, D.C., the Pump House in Kannapolis, North Carolina, which I'm assuming is a restaurant, The fit, but I, I've not been there, so I don't know. The Fed Community Restaurant in Clarkston, Michigan. Two Cities Pizza in Cincinnati. And the restroom at William S. Craycraft Park in Mission Viejo, California. <laughs> the dead finalists for the title of America's Best Restroom. I don't know. Do you get a plaque? Do you get something you can hang on the wall? I, I don't know. You can cast your vote through August 20th, so for the next three days at bestrestroom.com slash vote in case you want to check that out <laughs> that seemed like it uh, that it qualified for the broken news on an unusual side of the news to be sure and finally in the broken news talk about people doing dumb things police left shaking their heads after a harebrained man who was so focused on getting his D-train taken care of that he forsook the safety of those actually riding the D-train on New York City's MTA rail system. Now, this is a report from the New York Post. I'm just going to go through it here um, because there are so many layers of this. New York Post reports that Terrell Harris, an MTA conductor, uh, brought his girlfriend to work and into the conductor's cabin to let her drive the train. Now, mind you, she has absolutely zero experience. So, how did police even find out that all this happened? Because someone posted it about uh, posted about it on social media. You would think maybe a concerned passenger might have posted about it, might have uh, tweeted at the MTA, hey, something strange is going on here, but no. Um... It was not a concerned passenger. Dominique Belgrave, the girlfriend, happily filmed herself driving the train through several stops from 50th Street to 62nd Street. So 12 city blocks she handheld uh, with uh, Mr. Harris over the train's controls as she took it on a leisurely cruise through the city, captioning her posts, Yes, this is me operating the train. She even shared some photos and video of her taking the train solo through some stops, and uh, her account has since been made private, but police have seen enough that they would like very much to speak to Ms. Belgrave. As for Mr. Harris, Interim Transit President Craig Cipriano said he will be disciplined uh, and will be stripped of his conducting duties. 
By the way, you know, this is like a hundred twenty thousand dollar job conducting a train in the MTA in New York City. I want to assure customers, the uh, transit president said, I want to ensure customers that the operator involved has been removed from service and will no longer be allowed to control a train. This video is beyond egregious, showing a train operator who betrayed the trust of New Yorkers while creating a dangerous situation. It is unknown if uh, Ms. Belgrave or Mr. Harris will face any criminal charges yet. Put that under the file. It sounded like a good idea at the time. Let me just, uh, I'll take my girlfriend to work and I'll let her drive the train. Uh, no, not a good idea at all. There you go. <laughs> People doing dumb things. Uh, there you go. That is uh, today's update in uh, the broken news, the odd and unusual side of the headlines brought to you as a public service, more or less. Of Hancock County Veterans Services, we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. The Finley Trojans play here on WFIN. This is Tim Montgomery. Join me and Coach Cliff Hyde for all the action of Trojan football in 2021. We'll bring you every exciting play each Friday night, all season long, home and away. This is Coach Stephen Adams. The Trojans open the season at home this Friday night against Anthony Wayne. Finley Trojan football is here on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. It has happened to everyone. You buy something online, particularly in the last year when we were buying so much stuff online. You buy something online, and then when it arrives, you are completely and totally underwhelmed. (laughs) A recent survey finds that this adds up to a shocking amount of money wasted. Americans, this is what they say, Americans are wasting over $70,000 during their lifetime on online purchases that it turns out they don't want, don't use. And so the survey of 2,000 Americans found that people typically spend an average of $899 each year on underwhelming purchases. And the things that we are buying that we end up disappointed in online, clothes named by 60% of the survey, said technology devices. Toys or children's products were named by 25%. More than half, 56%, said that they return their disappointing merchandise, while 30% just throw it out. Nearly one in three of us just throw out those things that we bought, and it's just not worth the hassle to return. Um, 29% will give them away as gifts. I don't know what makes us think if we were underwhelmed that the recipient, uh, somebody we give them to, would somehow not be underwhelmed. (laughs) Or maybe we give them as gifts to people we just really don't like all that much. (laughs) We don't care. I don't know. But uh, (laughs) that I thought was interesting. The survey also asked about the effect of product reviews on online purchases. And just over half, 51%, said that they are more likely to trust bad reviews than good ones when shopping online. And two-thirds, because nobody ever paid for a bad review. You know, the, the, the fake reviews are all the good ones. Nobody ever paid for a bad review. And uh, <laughs> two-thirds trust reviews with images or photos more than ones with just text. So kind of interesting there about uh, all of the stuff that we are buying online, particularly timely. Again, given over the course of the past year, we've spent so much more money shopping online. And most experts say that continue to trend that way moving forward. But $70,000 we have spent during our lifetime on purchases that turn out to be disappointing or underwhelming. That is just a shocking amount of money. First time I met you, I had reservations, but that's all I knew. That hearts were made for breaking But you came in to love me And wouldn't let go All it took was trusting And now I know that you're my saving grace You walked in my life at the perfect time And She is born in Texas, raised in Ohio, and now taken on Nashville. 
Lord is up-and-coming singer-songwriter Jess Kelly Adams, who is with us in the studio. She will be performing on the Saturday night stage at this year's Hancock County Fair, which is right around the corner. And uh, JKA with us uh, in the studio. Uh, <laughs> oh, I like the nickname. Uh, goes uh, goes by that. Been known to uh, go by that. Thank you very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. Chris, no, thank you for having me. So... I- so, born in Texas, raised in Ohio. What part of uh, Ohio? In this part? Of, this area? Finley, Ohio. Really? So, I went to school uh, just north of Cincinnati. But I, So, I say I grew up around the Cincinnati area, but I was raised in Finley. How about that? Yeah. And uh, so, how long have you been uh, in Nashville and uh, pursuing this dream? Eight years. Wow. Eight years. I um, Yeah, right out of high school, um, a lot of my weekends were spent up in this area playing with a band that played frequently in like Lima, Finley, and yeah. Nino's, if you remember Nino's. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so that was my whole high school experience, pretty much. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm loving this. And so I moved to Nashville. Hanging out at Nino's in high school. <laughs> hey, now, just say, you're with I'm, the, just kidding, don't say that. Just you're say with, you're the, with band. the band. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all done that at one point? But you actually were. So uh, anyway, um just the just the dream. I was reading some of the uh, some of the back uh, background uh, on on you, and you talk about some of the influences uh, that uh, you know influenced your music. Yeah, and uh, a lot of the classic country. Oh yes. uh, artists. Grandpa made sure of that. Earl yeah. Thomas Conley, Dolly Parton, Conway Twitty. Yeah. The first song to make me actually fall in love with country music was Austin by Blake Shelton. Okay. And um, I was like, all right, I'm hooked. Yeah. That is catchy. You know, at the same time, though, I hear an awful lot of today's modern country performers in in your said the Carrie Underwoods and the Kelsey Ballerinis and the Gabby my favorite's Miranda Lambert. Miranda Lambert, yeah, absolutely. And I love Shania Twain. Shania Twain, um, a, another good example. How how do you balance that out with that traditional yeah. country sound, the modern sensibilities? Because frankly, that's been uh, some some criticism of today modern country is that it's getting further away from its roots yeah well my grandpa was a huge storyteller and yeah. he made sure i knew what good country music was mm-hmm. and for me what that meant was you know being able to tell a story in your songs and um and i've always had a lot to say but i never knew how to get how to be heard and so um so i started writing songs and um, but I also love Shania Twain and like I said, Miranda Lambert. The performing uh, yeah. of that, which is the which the is energy the, of it, and which is the the part that gives you the most satisfaction: the songwriting or the performing? Oh man, that's a hard question because it's apples to oranges. Yeah, the songwriting is my therapy. The performance <laughs> is where I can actually connect with others yeah. and um and be like, oh wow, this can actually help you too, and. Mm-hmm. I would have to say the performing because I can actually bond with people. That's got to be, as a performer and as a songwriter, too, one of the most satisfying parts of what you do is when somebody says, hey, this really resonated with me. When I was 13 years old, I played the Hancock County Fair Mm -hmm. and um, I had a song called Shine and it talked about um, not letting the mirror or the magazines tell you, like, you know, who you are and, and how you need to look. And after my show, I had a woman come up to me and say that she wished her nephew would have waited a week to hear my song. Mm. And at 13 years old, I knew what that meant. I knew that my purpose on that stage is a lot bigger than um, just getting up and singing. And um, and I didn't at 13, you know, it was just a little people wasn't like, oh, I have it all figured out. I'm still trying to figure it all out. <laughs> if we ever do, I don't yeah. know. You tell me. <laughs> well, I so so you've been in Nashville for uh, eight years. What is what has that been like? What has that experience been like? It's been exciting, especially coming from Findlay, Ohio, and then joining that scene, uber competitive scene. It seems like everybody's got a guitar and a story to tell yeah, in Nashville. Yeah, you know, I was just talking to Josh Melton. He played in Arlington. He'll be headlining the Hancock County show. Mm-hmm. And we're, we were both saying how um, the most exciting part is when you find your community in Nashville, your champions. And I totally agreed with him because um, when, once you find your people, then you, you don't really feel the competition. And I was reading... Uh, Brad Paisley's book long time ago and he said 
music should be collaborative, collaborative, mm-hmm. <laughs> however you say that word, yeah. not competitive. And I was like, ah, yeah, okay. And so um, that's how I look at it. It's all a mindset. <laughs> so Saving Grace, uh, we played a little bit of uh, earlier is your new song. Yeah. Um, talk about working on that because I'm guessing over the course of the past year, yeah. how what was that like? I mean, we heard an awful lot of, uh, of artists, you know, couldn't perform. Yeah couldn't go out of the house. Mm-hmm. We're producing new music at home as opposed to in the studio, which is a totally different experience for, for a lot of artists. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but especially for somebody who's looking to launch a career and build a career to take all of a sudden a year off. Yeah. That's got to be a challenge. It was tough because that's how, as an independent artist, that's how I make my money is sure. playing shows, selling merch, <laughs> yeah. um, stream like music streams and people buying my music mm-hmm. um and so if when i wasn't able to get out and play my music for people they weren't hearing it yeah they didn't know and so um it was it was a really really tough year especially since i'm i love being with people right and um so i wrote this song um saving grace because uh i finally found that you know where i find my acceptance and my joy and love is within and I found Jesus, y'all. <laughs> awesome. It is. I, I was going to say, this is, it sounds very much like a, a story of faith. Yeah, So it is. you want to do that one for us? What are you going to do for us uh, yeah. here this morning? I will do Saving Grace for you. Okay, sounds good. Uh, Jess? <laughs> Jess Kelly Adams uh, with her new uh, song, Saving Grace, which is available on iTunes and Amazon and everywhere you buy your Yeah, everywhere you buy your music. <laughs> I'll stop cutting you off now. <laughs> <laughs> First time I met you I had reservations But that's all I knew That hearts were made for breaking But you came in to love me And wouldn't let go All it took was trusting And now I know that you're my saving grace you walked in my life at the perfect time and place And now I know I'm gonna be okay I feel safe cause you're never far away You taught me how to love me for always You're my saving grace Oh, I'll admit it I couldn't trust a dreamer Once a cynic Now I'm a believer It took time to have faith To hear my heart But once I saw the light I felt that spark You're my saving grace Walked in my life at the perfect time and place And now I know I'm gonna be okay I feel safe cause you're never far away You taught me how to love me for always You're my saving grace you're my Saving grace. Oh, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Open my eyes, yeah, I saw the struggle. I tried to fight, you stood by my side, yeah, I can't deny that you're my saving grace. You walked in my life at the perfect time. Place. Now I know I'm gonna be okay. I feel safe cause you're never far away You taught me how to love me for always You're my saving grace You're my saving grace 
Awesome stuff. Just Kelly Adams with uh, her latest Saving Grace Saturday night at the Hancock County Fair. And uh, by the way, September real quickly, 4th. September 4th, uh, tickets are available now, and you're actually doing a ticket giveaway. I'm here. doing a tip, bleh, ticket giveaway tomorrow evening, 7 p.m. on the Hancock County Fair Facebook Live page. Right. So please come join me on their Facebook Live. And we'll uh, catch you Saturday night at the fair. It's going to be a great show. September show. 4th. Thanks very much, Jess. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And that will put a wrap on our podcast cast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. So check us out online. Coming up tomorrow, the Hancock County Fair is back for 2021. And the Chamber's Agribusiness Committee is once again putting together a buyer's group to support local youth at the livestock sale. We'll get more information. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.